When people overbuzz AI, you know, I ask them, it's like, okay, what did AI change in your life? You know, what did AI change? Really, truly, you know, something, don't tell me like you set a timer on, uh, on Alexa or Google or okay? That's not a life changing. So what was life changing <laughs> that came from AI, right? You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Jerome Pazenti was VP of AI at Meta, which is one of the most exciting places where AI research is happening. Before that, he was CEO of Benevolent AI. And before that, he was VP of machine learning at IBM Watson. So he's had a long career and seen a ton of different applications and lots of change in the state of the art in machine learning. This is a super fun conversation. And I hope you enjoy it. The first question that's like top of mind is just with like, with all the advances in, you know, large language models that, you know, we keep seeing. I know, um, you know, Meta had um, Blenderbot, right? I was kind of wondering if, if, if you have like a point of view or, you know, Meta had a point of view on like, you know, building a large language model like differently than, you know, like a DeepMind or an OpenAI and, and how, you, how you think about that. Oh, wow. You go uh, right deep into the, <laughs> the challenge there. I mean, uh, I would say the, the large, you know, transformer models, I think th at this point, it's not just language model, right? So the transformer right. and large models are starting to really like, uh, and having, you know, being able to be used in multiple tasks. So I think this is, this is a trend that everybody is following, you know, size, uh, multimodality, uh, 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 more data, more self-supervision actually, and less, you know, classical supervision. And then, um, you know, rather trying to do multiple tasks at the same time, you know, I think this is working really well. That's what people call them foundational model. I don't, I'm not sure I agree with that term, but so I do think, you know, everybody's going in that direction and that's, you know, paying out handsomely. Um, where I would say I'm a little bit more cautious is I think these models have lots of problems. Okay. And solving these problems is, uh, is not e trivial. It's not easy. I would say there's, there's two abuse class of problems I've seen. And so the people will be able to solve that really will be onto something very interesting. One is, uh, control, you know, so when you have this language model, I don't know how much you've played with you know, like stable diffusion or GPT-3, you know, it's really, really surprising in the things it gives you. Uh, but sometimes it really doesn't give you what you want at all. Right. Not necessarily what you ask. Uh, sometimes it has big artifacts uh, that show that it's, you know, it's not humanly generated. And it's not quite clear how you get rid of all this. You know, you can like, there's this whole thing around prompt crafting. I think it's, I mean, I think it's interesting, okay, but... Uh, I don't think you can, I mean, it's kind of scary to say you're going to do like, this going to be a new type of uh, software engineering is going to be for, because it's so unreliable, you know? And so that's the yeah. first piece, which is how do you make all these models more controllable, which is like you, you have a higher guarantee of what the outcome is going to be. And the second is, is bias. Obviously intelligence is about bias, but if you type, you know, something, I mean, the easiest way to do it is on the, this new, uh, image generation models. If you type CEO, guess what you get, you know, if you type assistant, guess what you get. If you type fast food worker, or if you type, you know, like banker, it's striking. I mean, it works, you know, like, you know, hundred percent of the time you, you get extreme bias and it means you can't really just use this in production. I think it would be terrible. So very exciting. I think everybody's seeing the trend there. It's working scale, multimodality, multitask. Uh, self-supervision, but, you know, they are not very controllable and they have huge, you know, bias issues. Do you feel like there are still like intrinsic cognitive limitations, like a Gary Marcus might say on, on Twitter, like how, like how, how, where do you sort of stand on the, the promise of, of this technique with transformers? I'm definitely like, you know, you have the, you, you, you have the spectrum of Gary Marcus on the left and you have, I think the, uh, you know, people who are extremely enthusiastic talking about AGI on the right. I'm squarely in the middle. Okay. Oh no, so, this is going to be a boring interview. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, I can tell you some things that are very, uh, you know, controversial. So, uh, you know, so no, I, I, I think, I think Gary really, 
um, right. overdosing because the progress is undeniable. I mean, everybody seeing the systems is surprised. I mean, I've been in this space for more than 20 years and I look at the stuff and I'm blown away, you know? It's, yeah, totally. And you had asked me a year ago, would we have made this progress? And I wouldn't have guessed it. I thought that these tasks were higher. But, but I think what happened is that the more you get closer to like human level intelligence, the more you realize that the task is much harder. And so some people are like, oh my God, we're going to lose our job as, de as developers or as creators. No way that's going to happen. I mean, like we're still millions, you know, like away because as soon as you make some progress, you realize that, you know, and, and it's some people have said, but it is that the, the goalpost actually looks further because you realize actually intelligence is a much wider space. It's much more complicated. So you realize that the system still makes very, very silly mistakes that humans wouldn't make, but it does things that you didn't think would, would be possible. So I am squarely in the middle, which is, I don't think we are anywhere close to human intelligence. I also think that AGI is a bullshit term. It doesn't mean anything because intelligence is by definition, never general. And then I don't buy Gary because look, the, you can deny the progress. It's like, you, you look a little bit like a fool if, if you deny that, but you know, it's such a much bigger problem than people imagine. So as we'd said at, at Meta Facebook, you know, we are 1% down and I really believe it. We're 1% down, but we, we did go 1% out of the way and, you know, and that's a huge accomplishment. 1% what? 1% to human intelligence, you know, so oh, we made I see. progress. Right, right, right. right. We made really <laughs> real progress, right? Uh, but it, it, it's, it, the, it's such a, you know, intelligence is so amazing that you still have a long way to go. But don't you feel like the, um, the stuff that we're building is starting to help building, you know, the next, the next generation of that stuff. Like I, I kind of can't believe how well the code generation works. Like I've been using uh, it. That my, one yes, is also super overstated. I mean, you I think I, so? I, absolutely. Because I mean. I mean, you, you are in, in software, right? I mean, yeah. like I give you a piece of code, okay? And I tell you it's 99% accurate. How good does it give you? Like the problem is that generating code that's not accurate. I mean, sometimes finding a bug is way harder than writing the code from scratch, right? So that's fair. I think the way to think of codecs and stuff like that is like an autocomplete, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very smart autocomplete the same way when you write your email right now. Gmail does autocomplete and it can complete, complete sentences and it's quite smart and it's quite impressive. And if you cherry pick the results, it looks amazing and it's very surprising what it can do. But, you know, like it writes something and then you have to say like, well, is it actually accurate? You don't have guarantees, you know, and not having guarantees in code is a huge, huge problem, right? I mean, like, you know, really bug-free code is worth a million times code, right? I mean, it's not the size of the code that matters. So, I'm really cautious on this one. I do think it's a useful developer tool. You know, people will use it, like they use a token pitch to write email, but it's not gonna write, it's not gonna put developers out of a, of a job, no, no way. And especially it's, it's very, you know, it's tricky when you write code because, you know, you need to have guarantees. Well, I certainly feel like it helps me write code faster. So I like imagine like better versions of it, you know, could, I mean, it seems very far from making, you know, putting someone out of a job, but. It seems like it could it may make people more productive. faster, but is it better or is it worse? You know, yeah, it's something you can write worse code faster. I'll give you that. You know, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, is it really allowing you to write? I think it will. And I also believe it. Write you know, it will make people faster, but how much will depend on the validity of the code. If you had a system that could guarantee you that the code is accurate that would be like a complete revolution. This is not what it is, right? And so I think it's all, again, having guarantees and having control over the outputs is something that's really one of the, you know, big challenge of these models, you know, making sure that what it says is accurate. That's another thing, you know, with language model, they hallucinate. Well, avoiding that is really, really, really tricky. Uh, yeah, I guess I, going back to my earlier question, you know, we've, now we're seeing like a whole bunch of different big models coming out that all seem like functionally like transformers, you know, trained, you know, in a huge, you know, corpus at, 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 you know, basically like all text that anyone can find as far as I can tell and at high volume. Do you feel like, um, the research is sort of converging on this one technique or do you feel like, you know, deep mind and, and meta have like sort of different strategies and, and points of view there? Well, actually uh, you should have uh, seen, uh, Jan's, uh, 
you know, Jens tweeted a few days back and he's like, hey, it's weird. Nobody talks about reinforcement learning anymore. Uh, and so, which is, you know, Jan had said, you know, I don't remember, you know, like he said, you know, oh, that means, you know, we don't really need the cherry anymore. You know, I don't know if you remember this metaphor of the cake, right? So you say, okay, the cherry is the reinforcement learning and supervised learning is is the icing and the body of the cake, right? The so in ways, the is is uh, unsupervised and is self-supervised. And so he really, uh, I think, predicted that it would happen. It is happened, which is like, and it's 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 from an information theory perspective it makes sense. You know, when you do reinforcement learning, you get very little information whether you're right or wrong. It's kind of like a you know binary, yes, no. You are going in the right direction. With supervision, you just use you know just a label, and with self-supervision, it's where you use the whole data. And so maximizing the information you get out of the data is definitely the trend. And I think that's where we're going. And you know you see self-supervision happening in every area of field. The flip side also is, you know, transformers are just you know working amazingly well, and scale is working amazingly well, and the combination of all this. You know, right now it's a trend. I don't think we have like a uh, a secret sauce that would be or we had, as you know, I'm no longer <laughs> there. But right, right, right. Interesting. Do you feel this concern that very few people will be able to do this training at at large scale? Like, what do actually academic institutions do in a world where the most exciting results are are coming from very very high volume uh, training? Yeah, it is a. It is concerning, and I can tell you that the costs are of this system and these models. I mean, like just before I left, we put online like one of the biggest super cluster out there, yeah. and it's just extremely expensive. You know, like, I can't tell you what it, the cost, but it's staggeringly expensive. Um, so yes, it is worrisome, and it does work. But I do believe that. Uh, we are kind of wasteful in the way we do things today. We are not really optimizing. It was very interesting to see stable diffusion come out really quickly after DALI. So I'm a huge proponent of like you know open sourcing of open models. I'm actually like you know Meta had done it with OPT175. You know, but it was cool to see stable diffusion come out after DALI. But not only like releasing open source, but also shrink shrink wrapping it. So now that I'm by myself, actually, I've been running it on my own computer or on a collab. You know, it's pretty cheap and <laughs> totally. it's kind of cool. I'm like, well, okay, I don't. Need. I mean, I haven't been able to train my own version yet, uh, but at least it's a bit more manageable. But overall, I I am a little worried, um, and I'm not seeing you know how we can avoid this, given how well it works. But we also have efficiency gains we can make. You know, you know, we we always talk about sort of like the practical applications here and how they're different than research can you talk a little bit about at at meta like what were the applications that like really mattered to me that they were using and how that kind of differed from the the research interests actually let me ask you a question because that's something i feel like please when people overbuzz ai you know i ask them it's like okay what did ai change in your life you know i mean oh in my life question yes in your life what did ai change really truly you know something oh, don't sh- tell me like you set a timer on uh on Alexa or Google Home. Okay, that's not a life-changing. So what was life-changing? <laughs> that came from AI, right? That's interesting. I mean, I feel like my life is not that different than, you know, someone in the in the 80s by, by that sense. I, mean, I actually love, um, I love listening to music with a, like an agent where I can just request it by by saying it. It's like delightful, but it's, I wouldn't say it's like life-changing. Um, I mean, I assume that like all the, recommendation systems that I interact with probably guide me. I mean, I feel mostly happy about that. Like I do feel like I remember when Amazon kind of first came out with a recommendation system. It just felt so great. It was like there's a whole world of like books that I want to read that I didn't um know about. So that might be the most um I don't know. What do you what do you think? I mean, you've probably thought no, about it's, it's a good me. point. So I I mean actually it's interesting <laughs> what you say, right? So I, I wouldn't challenge that the first one. I mean, I don't think when you people need last changing is that I can ask something yeah, for music. Yeah, life changing is way it. too strong. Yeah, yes. for sure. But it is true. So to answer your question, you guess right, which is, I, you know, at a place like Meta, recommender systems are just hugely impactful. And in two areas, well, you know, one is advertisements and the other is organic recommendation. And just that, you know, by the time I left, my team was a few thousand people and justify the entirety of the budget, you know, by far, you know, multiple, the ROI of investing in this system, you know, with larger scale 
uh, especially you can imagine an advertisement is, is, is really staggering. So in, if you ask me, that's actually, it's kind of disappointing if you think about it, but the most, you know, the most successful application of AI so far has been advertisement. And I would say maybe the second most successful has been recommender system in like, you know, ad, apps like TikTok, for example. But it's well, kind of a wait, behind wait, the scenes. But actually, you're a search guy. Don't you think maybe I should have said search? I feel like web search is incredible. No, because right? web search came out with other AI, right? I mean, I mean, That's the, true. The, the whole history of AI at Google. Not, I was, I would I like to be a fly on the wall there. Actually, there was a, a Sundar I got interviewed by Kara uh, Swisher just recently, and he was say, talking about how how much uh, uh, reluctance there was at Google to use AI in search. You know, like actually, it's it's a it's a fairly recent story, actually. And and today, even some people, I mean, I do think actually AI is very useful in, to, in search, but I wouldn't put that in the category of kind of behind the scene, you don't really understand what it's doing, you know. Uh, but it's also a late story. Whereas in recommended system and ads, I think it came much earlier as a fundamental block. Whereas I think Google worked pretty well early on with traditional information retrieval techniques, you know. <laughs> but so you're right. I mean, if you ask me to ask me a question, Recommenders are the big thing. The second big thing, which is especially when I, you know, was there, was moderation. So moderation at scale can only be done with AI. You know, so moderation at scale is is done. And I think you can look at the stats as a report. It's done every three months, but now we are up to like high nineties. You know, in most of the thing, even though there are thirty thousand people doing manual moderation that pair with uh, the AI. The amount of data to process is so great, right? That majority of the first action is done by AI, you know, in the 95% plus. For things like, you know, hate speech or bullying or a lot of a lot of complex problems. Doesn't mean it works perfectly, but it creates enough friction that I think it does make the system overall much better. And and would you scale up to that, you know, that massive like volume and 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 so the massive volume of inference like what what sort of changes about about how you approach a problem like that? Like say, you know, moderation at at scale of trying to moderate everything that's coming into to Facebook. I mean, I don't know if you're asking in terms of like the actual application or the support of that application. You know, so uh, that is so support application is very very hard. I mean, like the whole MLOps aspect is just you know, and we could discuss that. It's it's really really hard. I don't think. In my tenure at, 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 at Facebook Meta, we solved it. We solved some part of it, especially with PyTorch. I think it was great success. But after it's hard. So all this system that evolved quickly uh, at scale, very, very hard. Um, on the other side, from a user perspective, you know, scale is tricky because you can have the impression it works well. So all our stats show, hey, we made a lot of progress. If you look at since we introduced AI and hate speech, you know, the amount of hate speech in the platform went down 3x. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that's the experience of people, and it doesn't mean it's true for anybody anywhere in the world. Very, very interesting problem. The experience, for example, is very interesting. It doesn't matter if you like match your policies and you remove hate speech. What matters is actually how people experience your product. And that's a very different story. And then the experience of people depends a lot from where they are in the world. And, you know, the language aspect, the cultural aspect are very, very important there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you say, actually, I was kind of curious about both sort of the technical and, and non-technical challenges. But, you know, since you bring up PyTorch, I, I would not have thought that PyTorch was something that you think of as sort of like helping with the with the operations. I feel like when it came out, it, it was it seemed oriented more towards research. But I guess maybe I'm wrong there. Oh yeah, that's a long story. So I can tell you a little bit of the story how it happened. Tell me the story, so I, please. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when I joined uh, uh, Facebook at the time, right in 2018, uh, the company had decided to go on a dual path, you know, with PyTorch, Cafe Two, and Onyx in the middle. And I thought, man, that's that's just such a hack. That's a non-decision. I think the decision was made two months before I arrived. And it's the one thing, usually when you go and join a company like this, you do not want to make decisions early. But this is one decision where I told the team, actually, I didn't say, hey, we should do PyTorch. I told the team, like, no way we're going to do this. And we need, from experience, I knew that we needed to be on a platform that had community support. And so I told the team, okay, you're going to have to pick, you know, one framework that we know will have traction in the community. And 
And they were honest and they knew that that could not be Cafe 2 at the time. The community support there really dropped. PyTorch was a rising star, but not production ready. And really the only one that had all these aspects was TensorFlow at the time. But the team was convinced that the model you know, of, uh, uh, of PyTorch was better and you know, allowing to do more dynamic you know, uh, graphs. And, uh, and so they came back and say, hey, we think we can make it happen and we can make PyTorch a contender um, both on the research front and the production front. And that's where the company uh, bet. And for the past you know, four years after the decision, we have been moving almost everything at Meta uh, from Cafe2 to PyTorch. And people love PyTorch. So it's not actually a hard thing to convince people. It's just an amazing, it's a better tool to do exploration. But it didn't mean we had all the MLFs around it. And to this day, we still are trying to really figure it out. So it's not, not easy, but it was the right choice. You know, PyTorch definitely, as you share a scene, it's just, it's, it's a product that people love and you want to start from that. Um, and so that gave us a lot of traction. That's the right direction, but it, they still lack a lot of the infrastructure around it. And there are a lot of reasons for that that we could discuss it. Well, do you have a theory of, of, of why it's so loved? Because, you know, we watched this firsthand, like when we started um, Weights and Biases, TensorFlow had a clear lead and we watched PyTorch overtake it just on our own logs. It was a really dramatic um, yep. shift. And, and it's funny because, uh, you know, from my perspective, and I, you know, I've like dabbled with both, um, they seem pretty feature comparable to me. I mean, there was sort of in the early days, you know, there was obviously PyTorch had the... Um, you know, sort of just-in-time generation of the of the graph. But um, do you have a theory about why why PyTorch seems like it was so much better loved? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you another little anecdote. I remember the reason actually I, I felt stronger about this at when I joined Meta is before I joined in my team, I remember um, we had also this problem. At, at, at the time, you had Theano, you had like other other of the system and we had, and we were a small team and I was in a startup and we were a small team and we had, we already had a few frameworks. I said like, oh, we can't do this. Okay, <laughs> we got to agree on one. And so yeah. I think we agree on one. I think it was like TensorFlow. And six months later, they're like, no, 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 we got to use PyTorch, you know, like no way we can. And I'm like, we made the decision. And we went, we went to PyTorch. I'm like, oh, okay, there is something there. I, I actually think that uh, the reason is simple is that the people who develop PyTorch, to me in particular, had a design mindset. You know, if I were like in the, the mantra, it, it was actually a user-centric design. Okay. And it's funny because I think the people who did it didn't necessarily know it. They are not sure even the new terminology, but it really definitely had the research in mind and what they wanted to do. And you can feel it. The problem with TensorFlow is that it was retrofitted. So even if now, because of influence, you know, it, you know, it's there, it has been plugged on top, it still feels like it's cobbled up together. And, you know, it's hard to acquire the log, you know, like you can lose it. It's hard to gain, you know. And right. so it's really about, you know, uh, user friendliness, research and friendliness, actually. And I think also the fact that research is driving the narrative in AI today. It's not a stable field, right? And so that, that really put PyTorch at the center, I think, of that universe. And so what were the important pieces that you had to put around it to make it, you know, really work for you in a, in a production environment? I mean, the, the challenge with PyTorch, I tell you, the really uh, complex stuff is that it's almost like a, you know, almost like an anti-pattern. Uh, and let me try to explain that. You know, I think there's this, you know, saying um, that, you know, early optimization is the root of all evil. But the challenge with something like PyTorch is that you need to do early optimization. You don't, you don't have a way around it. Why? Because you need to create a system that gives a lot of flexibility to users. Uh, to do a lot of things, yet is optimized because scale matters, efficiency and speed matter. So you have this constant challenge of, especially in the interest of the operator internally to have things that really follow. Like if you couldn't do transformers today, PyTorch would be awesome and everything else, forget it, right? Nobody will use it, right? So you need very quickly when you see where the trend is going, you have to go and put very good operator and you need to optimize it. So you have this constant you know, progress there doing this. That's one challenge. The other challenge is we had to give that team, and I'm really a big believer in focus. And in this case, it was a constant battle. I say, hey, look, you have to focus and I cannot make it simpler for you and you cannot screw it up. One is you cannot screw the external community. You have to create something that people will continue loving. 
and you cannot make it bloated, right? The problem when you start creating enterprise software, production software, it becomes bloated, it becomes difficult to use. You can do this. At the same time, you have to make it work for us internally. Uh, and, you know, it has to have all the production aspects. It has to be deployable, has to be production ready, which most people in the research community don't see, don't understand, you know, it's actually... So we had to have these two objectives. You know, and that's it's hard, you know, the team suffered through, but I think they did actually quite an amazing job at, at keeping it because ultimately Meta is going there, you know, it will be at 100% PyTorch in a very, you know, soon future. And, and I think the community still loves and adopted, you know. Was there some experience that you were talking about that made you understand the value of community support? Like, did, were you using something at a different company where they didn't have the community support? You, you just mentioned that a couple of times that it's like, so essential to use technology that the community believes in. Yeah, because I've seen companies, uh, you know, being stuck in a, in a, you know, in a data. I mean, actually, you could almost argue. I don't know. Maybe they're gonna help me for this, but you know, PHP and Hack at at Facebook, you know, like uh, is a really tricky one. You know, they kind of own it. I mean, Facebook is so big that I guess you know, maybe something they can own it. But I, I really think this. Uh, they sound not good. I think you see it dying on the vine and you are adopting a technology that just doesn't progress anymore, you know. And so I've seen it for many, you know, many systems, uh, I would say, but all, all, I would say, like the big data systems, you know, um, the containerization system, you can see there's always kind of like one winner. And if you make their own choice, you're kind of stuck at some point moving off from it, you know. Right, right. I thought you were going to maybe mention um, IBM Watson. I'm kind of curious with that. What that experience is like. (laughs) (laughs) That is a very different story, you know. And so, uh, uh, I can tell you more about this. I mean, like, I think what Sun was, I mean, the good thing for me is that, you know, I went there through an acquisition. So I had created an AI company uh, and IBM acquired it. It was great for everybody. So I was very happy. And, but actually, I think when IBM created the Watson units, that was a bold move. You know, it was really about saying, hey, you know, we believe there is a commercial. Uh, uh, potential in AI, you know, and that was 2013. You know, that that's not, you know, at the time actually, you know, not many people were talking. We, we were talking about AI. The, the deep learning revolution came around like 2011, 2012. People were seeing it's coming. Actually, you know, Jeopardy, the the the, the challenge, you know, when they did it with Watson, did not use deep learning, which is kind of interesting. It's a bit of a dirty secret. It, it used very little machine learning. It used traditional NLP, and they managed to get something pretty good, but. And so, you know, they made this big bet on it. And I think it was really, uh, obviously, the right bet. And it was early and it was good. But there were challenges, right? The challenge is that you had to be patient. And so, you know, I, I tend to say, like, you need to be impatient for profit and patient for revenue. And IBM did the opposite. They were impatient for revenue and patient for profit. I mean, they did a lot of this very large engagement promising the moon that you may spend, you know, $10 billion to make a billion. That does that, not a very good business, you know. And so why I, what I was focused when I was there was really try to, you know, shrink wrap AI and put it as cloud services. You know, at the time we came up with this idea of like putting AI in the cloud as services to do speech, to do conversation. And to this day, I think that's still the majority of what Watson is doing. Uh, I think it was very uh, ahead of the game and it was, uh, but the other problem is IBM didn't have much of a cloud, you know, so I was, I felt a little bit stuck when I was there because I think it's the right strategy. I think we're getting traction, but I'm building on an infrastructure that's not as robust as if you are Amazon or Microsoft. Right? <laughs> and and then you went into um, drug discovery, didn't you? Which is, is super hot now, I feel like. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I got recruited to the to uh, be the co-CEO of a company called Benevolent AI. I think it's a fascinating field. I'm a huge believer uh, that it will happen. And so if you can see that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of promising things happening, uh, in AI, even at, at Meta, you know, in the, in the research team fair, we were doing things around like, you know, understanding the function of, of proteins, uh, you know, looking at, uh, making prediction around er- free energy on, on small molecules and catalysis, you know, like very interesting stuff you can do with AI today. Now that said, you know, um, it hasn't really completely changed the field. I actually think that drug discovery needs a bit of a, what I would call like a Tesla revolution, which is you need kind of a tech company to take it head on. 
but it has such a huge amount of domain knowledge that it's a very hard problem. It's like, you know, similar in some way to what Elon did with Tesla. Like it takes 15 years to understand what it, you know, to build a car. And I think drug discovery is even bigger than that. It's even more complicated. But the decision process of these companies, the way they approach technology, uh, you know, the, the saying there is there's no, uh, there's no good model out there, but some models are more useful than others. Okay, that's what they say out there. And the reason is the models are more useful is because they just use them to justify the decision they had made before. You know? <laughs> so that's the way drugs are, are made these days. In a lot of decision made, not a lot of data to support it, a lot of influence. You know, you have a concept called like a key opinion leader. That's how decisions are made there. Um, I'm not a big fan. You know, influence <laughs> authority. That's not, I think, how a business should be run. Uh, but that's the, how it is right now. So I, I'm really looking forward to a big disruption and maybe I'll get involved in this uh, again. Yeah. That would be cool. I mean, you know, when 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 we started, you know, Wits and Biases, we didn't think that we'd have many um, pharma customers. And now, you know, we work with most of them. So it does seem like, you know, the, at least the pharma companies believe pretty strongly that there's something there for, um, you know, deep learning, I think, to help with, with um Drug discovery. I mean, do you, do you have a sense for like what the the breakthroughs have been that have you know made things like AlphaFold work well? Well, oh yeah. I mean, there are different challenges, uh, 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 but you know, so it, it does. What I find remarkable is that, and it, I still don't quite understand it. Which is, it does seems that deep learning and and uh, especially even like the transformer architecture, for example are kind of able to understand grammar, you know, of things, you know, like of, of images, of text, but also of, you know, like proteins, for example. <laughs> so, you know, in a we had a project at, at Meta where you just like feed hundreds of millions of proteins to a language model, and the system from there is able to predict function, you know, pretty well, without having seen anything, like this very little supervised data. So it's something that I'm just, I'm not sure I understand because it's not like our brain understand molecules, right? So, but that means there's this kind of like generic computation that works well in so many areas. And it, it's just still blow my mind. And I understand that it can do it for language and for images because, I mean, humans can do that. But humans can't understand, can't fold molecules, understand their functions. And so why is it working? And why can you predict, like, you know, can you do quantum calculation better with... I, I don't know. It's it's really really interesting. So it seems to me like this gener- thing that's generic even more than than human intelligence. You know. Yeah, it does seem like an opportunity to do something that humans really can't do. Right. Yeah, so like, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the case. Yes. Um. Yeah. But there are lots. I mean, so back to your question, there are actually lots. Of, you know, you have the chemistry, you have the, the biology, you have the clinical trials, you have patient data. There are actually many, many stages. There is the target identification. So for the benevolent AI, one of the big things we're doing is try to mine the literature to come up with new a new graph, find new relationships, new targets. So it's very, very early in the game. Okay. Then you have companies that try to figure out, okay, given a target, what are the right molecules that can affect that target? You know, can we do some some AI-assisted chemistry there, right? And then there are people who try to understand better, like the biological aspects, you know, like how how like docking actually works, you know, and and so and then you have like the patient data, and you have like the imagery of the patient data, and how can you understand it, you know, can you deduct from there, and then you can you combine that with genetic information. So actually, there are really literally like I don't know, like dozens of places where it can uh, affect. I was talking to a friend of mine who just started a company to think of like how to design what I think he called it promoters. So not the piece that's active, but the thing that like, for example, in an, in an RNA based, you know, medication, you know, but, but the thing that's going to say how much is going to be, uh, uh, you know, how potent it's going to be like the little code that you don't pay attention to the DNA that usually tells you how much is used and how much, uh, it, it, the cell is going to be affected. And, you know, I had no idea this thing existed, you know, but you need a code for that. It's a few hundred, you know, uh, uh, amino acids there. And so actually using AI for that might be very good. And the advice I gave him is like, hey, go use Transformer. I bet you they're going to, you know, <laughs> train them on DNA and you'll figure out, they'll figure out that, the, but I don't know. I mean. But anyway, there are a lot of aspects, you know, of the process where it can 
uh, like and a half. I would say, you know, dozens. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's something that you're excited about right now and, and looking into. Yes, it, it is. Yeah. But, but I really, what excites me is, you know, how do you get, I, I'm convinced that you're going to see a lot of like what I would call like business processes being improved uh, throughout the industry. I think you're going to see, it's slow by the way, you know, like you're going to see companies adopting for part of the processes like insurance companies and banking and healthcare. Like they're going to take little blocks. They're going to work with these B2B companies and they're going to adopt it. Um, what I'm more excited with is like, you know, how do you change entirely your field? You know, that it's, and I think you have transportation. Obviously a lot of people are trying that, you know, with self-driving car. Or other kind of self-driving, you know, maybe that's going to come first. You have healthcare, you know, and you have drug discovery, like payer, you know. I think you have education as well that could be completely transformed. But I'd love to do something that not just like, you know, take the current companies and just like, you know, incrementally improve them, which I think is what's going to happen naturally, but change the game. I think in drug discovery, you can change the game. You can change the decision process. You can change, you know, so the attrition that you have right now that makes a, a drug cost a billion dollar will be diminished by 10x, you know. Well, so I, t- I totally agree with you on drug discovery and, you know, autonomous vehicles. I mean, you know, I think, you know, you'd be blind not to sort of see the the opportunity there and the success that, that folks are having. But I, I don't actually know that I've seen a ton of success in education. Now, this seems like a surprising, it seems like education actually has like the least amount of technology inserted into yeah, right yeah. Now. What, uh, I, mean, I, what... <laughs> I agree with you so it's a field I'm very interested in I've been looking into it and uh, I mean the way I put it I actually just like I wrote a little like position document for this for me recently and I'm like the way I put it is that I think education is completely in the in the in the war for attention you know education is completely outgunned today you know so if you are a teenager right do you want to go to a boring lecture or you want to go on TikTok and seeing stuff by millions of, of creators, you know, that really is adapted to your interest and understand what you like, what makes you, you know, what get, well, you know, a system that gets you versus a system that's static and, you know, and the same way of educating that was, you know, 500 years ago. So it doesn't mean there's no opportunity there. I think they are. But culturally, it's also a difficult uh, field, right? Mm. But think of it, you know, the way I put it is that like, you know, like, look, look what's happening on TikTok. But actually, kids go on TikTok, like my, my daughters, they send me stuff like, oh, look at this guy, he teaches me mad on TikTok. I'm like, come on, like, but yeah, that's entertaining. It's well, I'm sure that's the way to do it, but uh, it shows you the potential, you know, like uh, to make it a lot more engaging. You know, you have to engage the user. You have to make it compelling to them. And I think there are technique and there is AI to do that. I think we understand that pretty well, actually. And so um, that, I think, is an opportunity. Interesting. Um, I, okay, more to come. You know, I'm not gonna... <laughs> All right. Excited to learn more about this. I'm, I'm, as, a, as someone who likes to learn, you know, I, mean, I, would, I, I actually think, um, I think YouTube has become such an incredible like, educational resource, even on like deep technical topics. And I think the the voting is surprisingly effective too. Like I, w- I would have thought that it would be hard for like really good educators to sort of like bubble up to the surface on, you know, like very advanced topics, but it, it seems like it's a pretty good, I don't know. The algorithm, I, I guess on YouTube is working, <laughs> working well for me. I've, I've been learning. I agree. More and math you know, when you look at, uh, you know, I think uh, that's the thing that's, I'm not sure it works for younger uh, students, but I think for adult education, I think for, uh, you know, high school education, you know, a lot of them start bypassing, uh, you know, the traditional way and go on YouTube. But YouTube is also not an educational platform, right? So there are other ways to learn. Like, personally, I love learning through practice, right? And through exercise. Yeah, totally. So actually, I, I mean, I think people have different styles. So I, I have a hard time staying in front of a lecture. I love practice and I love something that would, like, the frustration I have with all the education system today is that they don't start by kind of like constantly evaluating you. Like, what uh-huh. are my gaps, you know? What do I need to practice next? What's uh-huh. the optimal thing that I can do next, right? What's, you know, you know, a lot of systems today really tell you, like, what is the best next thing I can show you? That's how TikTok works, right? right so, like, right. what is the thing that's going to make you really, really want to come back on TikTok, you know? I don't think education works like this today, you know? What is the thing that's going to make me more informed and want to stay and, and continue that course? 
Well, I hope you work on this. I'm. I'm... <laughs> we'll see. It's a, you think drug discovery is complicated? Oh my god! Like education <laughs> is also like complicated, but it's like that's the problem, you know. Like healthcare, education, you know, like all these uh, drug discovery in these complex fields that are hard to disrupt, you know. Right, right. I was wondering, you know, like Meta has made this huge bet on, um, you know, augmented reality. As far as I understand, do you think that, like machine learning has a role to play there has caused some of the interest in like AR or VR. It's not a space that I understand super well. So let, let me give you a, a framing for it, you know. So the challenge with this new kind of interface, so it, let's say it assume, which is not a guarantee, that it's going to be a set of glasses that you put on your head. And let's say it's going to be the next platform, right? Because let's be honest, I think, you know, like phones are amazing invention, but they're kind of a frustrating invention, right? You have a little little screen like this. I mean, like, I see ourselves like always on that little screen. It's like, this is so, I think my prediction to you is like in 30 years, people will look back and say, my God, this is like the stone age, you know, of interfaces. So, you know, something is going to change it. The thing, the challenge with glasses, right, is that it's, it's not a uh, imperative interface. Like I'm not typing. I'm not like in some way, the phone is a little bit less imperative than a computer or a keyboard. That means like you're clearly telling the computer what you want. You know, when you type, you type the key. There's no ambiguity there. I think this, the touch screen was a little bit more of an implicit interface, which is like, you know, oh, you know, it's not exactly sure what you're saying and I'm going to try to make it. It's actually using a little bit of machine learning underneath there to figure out what you talk, but it's not like groundbreaking machine learning, you know, like to figure out like what exact word and it's using actually some of these language models when you type on your keyword. And imagine now you have glasses, right? There's no inputs, you know, so what is it? And, you know, one of the obvious one is voice, but it's very likely that it's not going to be a lot just voice for sure. It's not going to be just voice. It's going to be kind of gesture. It's going to be motion. You know, one thing that Meta is working on is a little bracelet there. Uh, you know, they acquired a company to, that, 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 that did this. I think it's very, very interesting. So you can maybe type in there or, or move your finger silently. Uh, there's going to be like motion. It's going to be trying to understand your intent. So the problem with glasses is you don't have a keyboard. You know, you can't enter the information and you can't tell a glasses what you want, but you'll need to have a rich interface that understands you. And so AI has to play a role there. And it's a very challenging role. It's like a, you know, creating a, a contextual interface, you know, that understands all the context around and lets you really direct the, the system you have on your, on your face. Mm -hmm. This is probably a speech interface, I'm guessing, or? Well, speech, the problem is that, so speech is part of it, but what our guess is, you know, our guess was, is that speech may not play as big a role as you think it will. Huh. Because, you know, it's like, I don't know, I mean, you, you know, when can you really speak to a company? Like, I mean, your phone, right? As Siri, right? How often do you use it? Uh, I mean, I never use it, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I never use, use it. Also. Yeah, I never use it either. Because it's awkward, right? I, I'm in the middle of here, I'm going to talk to my phone like this. So actually talking to the glasses while it's possible. And I don't know if you saw like Meta came up with the Ray-Ban and my team actually did the speech for it. It's nice. It works well. Mm -hmm. But actually there are not many places where you want to do this. So maybe you want to do more motion, your gestures, other things, a combination of all these things. Tap, you know, like so. So the interface will be a lot more complex, multimodal than, than we assume. It's not going to be just speech. Interesting. Okay, another totally different question that, that I had that I was wondering if you had a thought on is, you know, one thing that's been really striking is um, NVIDIA's like total stranglehold on the training um, market. I mean, there's like some stuff coming out of Google, but doesn't seem like it has tons of traction, at least in training. Do you have a sense for why that, that might be? It's lasted a lot longer than I would have thought. Like, I, you know, and there's lots of startups that compete and, you know, people working on chips, but somehow... It just doesn't seem to move. Oh, I, I know. I, I, I would say I know all about it. Okay. <laughs> because remember what I told you earlier, which is that uh, these things are very expensive, right? And when you have a sole provider, it's, uh, it's very complicated and it's very expensive. Thankfully, now the crypto market went down. And so I think it's going to be a little nicer, you know, GPUs. But it did feel, feel like time like a racket, you know, like we were paying for the GPU. But... The flip side of that is NVIDIA is very good. And they're very good, not just because of the GPU. So I think the GPU 
especially when you come from more of a PyTorch, you know, like, you know, exploration mode, it works well. You know, it's very multi-purpose. I think it, it is very flexible. So that worked really well for us. But the thing also is NVIDIA got the software really, really well. You know, they really got it right. And they work with us amazingly well. They're very competent people to create that, that's, that's uh, uh, you know, CUDA layer. And, and it's hard to replace. And I'll tell you, like, because man, I, I I want it, and I throw some money at you know to other people to say like, go do it, or we'll do it for you. Like just go, you you, <laughs> you got to be able to compete, you know. But software is hard, and they are very talented, and they do a great job. And that's why I got them there. You know, they just have the best software. They have great hardware, and have the best software stack on top of it. And if you're serious, it's still the best uh, best in town. And, and even if you compare to like. You know, the TPU, the benchmarks, you know, are comparable, yet the GPU is way more flexible, right? So unless you have some workloads, you know, I think it works well for ads for, for Google, the TPU can be competitive, but for the rest, actually, GPU is still the best game in town and, and they have a great software stack on top, you know. You would think like some, like more specialized systems would work in more specialized cases, wouldn't you? It's kind of amazing that the flexible system also seems to function the best for almost all. Yeah, but think of this thing, like the challenge we had, right? So imagine like, okay, you try to design a chip and you design it when the big game in town or CNN and ISTMs and, you know, and, you know, a lot of, I mean, the recommendation is a lot of, uh, you know, sports networks. And then you wake up three years later and like everything has changed and the game has changed, you know. Now it's Transformer and actually like dense network can start to be really relevant to do also recommendation, you know, and you design your chip and it takes five years to get it out. So by the time you get it out, you know, it's already uh, over, which, you know, many people are done and, and have done as well, you know, and so it's very hard. It's the problem I told you is like this early optimization, which is if you don't keep your options open while still optimizing what you have, you know, like you may be in a dead end. You know? mm, yeah. Interesting. Well, cool. We always end with two questions. But I guess before that, I'm just I'm kind of channeling all the students that we always get in comments, um, you know, wherever we we post these. I, I mean, I think you've had like this uh, very enviable career um, in machine learning, and we have so many students that use our software and watch these interviews. Do, do you have any advice for like students coming out? Like, what would you work on if you were just sort of like entering the field out of like undergrad or, or grad school? Like, how would you think about that? Well, I would not like. Um... You know, I'm not going to give you specific, but I'll give you a little story actually that uh, I got from a uh, uh, a guy who used to study ants. Okay, so he just died recently, E.O. Wilson. You know, uh, he you know invented a really interesting concept around evolution, and and so he wrote a little book, you know, which is Letter to a Scientist, and then he says, you know, when I was young, I came out and uh, I was not even he was in his PhD, and he decided to focus on ants. And the amazing thing is at the time that sounded like a very crazy idea. And obviously ants, we know as society is a very important now. And he became the world specialist in it and world renowned. And so what I tell people, especially in science who come out is like, don't be afraid of like going for something that you own, that's your own thing, you know, and go for it uh, and be bold about it, you know, and actually don't assume that everybody has done everything. You know, there's a lot of, you know, opportunity for you to own it and go for it and be focused on it, you know. And so that's what I would advise, you know. I think there's very wide uh, space. There's a lot of space for every everybody. And so be bold, be ambitious. Fair enough. All right. Um, okay, so the last two questions are, one is, um, and this is like, you're, it seems like you're kind of doing this, but if you had extra time to work on something, um, what would it be? <laughs> That's what I do now. I told you I do yeah, kite surfing. Totally. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but if you weren't kite surfing all day long, <laughs> what would you uh, be looking into? Well, for me, I do two things because, you know, one is, you know, I I was a government manager for the past, you know, like uh, 10 years. I think the last totally. time I coded was before my company got acquired and I love coding. So I, I'm going back to coding, you know, I'm going back to getting my hands dirty, really understand, you know, I, I as much as my team developed PyTorch, you know, I do I really understand it? Do I understand how it works? And so I spend more time, you know, doing this, and that's a lot of fun. You know? I think Carpathy, you know, you know, just coming out of uh, out, out of Tesla, I said the same. She's like, oh, my skin is is cleaner. I sleep better, <laughs> you know. Like so, dealing with 
technical problem rather than people problem is always, you know, uh, a big boost. So that's what I'm doing, you know, really, really stay up to date. And I think it's really critical to understand, you know, my next stage is, oh, okay, I want to write a transformer from scratch, you know, what is that? Nice, is nice. It? So the second I'm trying to do is really try to evaluate where the big opportunity is, you know, and I, I think for me, I feel like, okay, um, I've done the B2B startup. I don't want to do another one like this. Um, and I want to try to see like, what's, what's going to be the big revolution here? Is it going to be like drug discovery? It's going to be transportation. It's going to be education. So I'm going to pick one and I'm going to make a bet. I'm going to go for it and maybe I'll fail, you know, and, and maybe there's 1% chance I'll succeed, but at least it'll be worth it, you know? Nice. I love it. Um, okay. And final question is when, when you think about, um, you know, taking a model from sort of research to, um, to like deployed in production and, and useful, like where, where do you see the major pitfalls or where are the, the pitfalls that might be surprising to someone that was just a researcher? Oh my God, it's so complicated. You know, like it's actually really, uh, it's something I feel we, we don't figure out. I mean, I'll reverse the question, you know, which is like, what makes, let's say DevOps good, right? Do you want some things that's, you know, reliable? that scales, that you can test. Uh, and, you know, while, you know, testing in AI, it's hard, actually. How do you test, actually? You can test, like, you know, tests that are very close to the model, or you have downstream tests. Imagine you change the speech recognition, and you have 20 systems with 20 layers on top of that. How do you test the last system that depends on that? Reliable, well, these systems, I mean, we claim they are deterministic, but they are not, actually. A lot of, like, and a lot of behaviors are really well, you know, that you cannot actually completely uh, reproduce, right? And then scale, this thing keeps scaling, you know, like every every year at Meta, we were like 10x bigger, you know, and, and it wrecks havoc in all your assumptions. It, it, it's really, really hard, you know, it really breaks the, you know, the, the, the assumption you want to have to create this, they're just not there. and it, it, I don't think we're figuring it out, you know. I think it's, it's still a, a work in progress. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. This is super fun. I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Joe. Thank you so much, guys. If you're enjoying these interviews and you want to learn more, please click on the link to the show notes in the description where you can find links to all the papers that are mentioned, supplemental material, and a transcription that we work really hard to produce. So check it out. 